If you remember from last week, there was vibrant spiritual power coursing through Samaria. And that's because of Acts 1.8. Jesus said to them, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, amazing, vibrant spiritual power in the Samaritan miracles that we read about last week. But it's also safe to say that wherever God sows his true believers, Satan will eventually sow his counterfeits. Correct? We know that the enemy is always in opposition, and a mighty work of God was happening in Samaria, and the enemy knew full well what was going on. The enemy comes like a lion to devour, and when he, his approach fails at times, he comes as a serpent to deceive. And so Luke today will record for us, as was his practice, he's a historian and a physician, and with great detail he's going to talk to us about how the gospel confronts Simon the sorcerer's magic craft, which is a phenomenal read. If you read through it, there's a lot of questions you sh- that come to the top of your mind as you read through. It's a fascinating text of Scripture. But as a result of Stephen's sermon, remember the gospel has scattered. The people scattered, so the gospel scattered because it's in the people, right? And that was not by accident. God is sovereign over persecution, and he never intended for his people to stay in Jerusalem, but to be forced out, pushed out to share the gospel. So Philip, one of the seven deacons, goes down into Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel, and that gospel is accompanied by great joy. Great persecution leads to great joy. It's real, authentic gospel joy that the world cannot take away from us. So as we approach this text this morning, it's important to remember that Samaria would be considered a covenantal no-man's land. Now, they're not as full-blown pagan as the ones you're going to see when we get over in Acts. And Paul is preaching to the Athenian believers. But they're still outside of the covenant people of God because they're half-breeds. They're Samaritans. They're pagans uh, from the Jewish perspective. They're racial half-breeds. And there's all kind of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Can you remember that from John 4? What dealings? Do the Samaritans have with the Jews and vice versa? So the incorporation of the Samaritans into the covenant community is a milestone in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It knows no ends, has no bounds, and God will accomplish His purpose. So keep that in mind as we track through Acts chapter 8 that the gospel has moved out of Jerusalem. This is the first chapter where you see the gospel move outside of Jerusalem And it's reaching people from every tribe and tongue and and nation, just like Jesus said would take place. It is a new phase in expansion of the gospel according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, let's read about this confrontation with Simon Magus, as your translation may say. Mine just says Simon, but he's a sorcerer and the gospel is going to confront him. Listen to the word. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Kind of a lengthy read, but it's more important than what I have to say about it, right? For us to see what it says. Aren't you thankful that God has given us His Word? He has given us His Word. This is what He would have to say to us today. 
But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 3 is the disturbing verse, as you see the end of the story. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, that being Peter and John, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, ooh, check this out, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that, all these are loaded with Old Testament references, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond or captivity of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, what shall we say about Simon the magician? Well, we learn here again that he is a magician. When we're talking about the magical arts here, I don't think it's as simple as saying, here's a guy who is pulling a quarter out of a kid's ear. Or here is a guy who is able to pull a rabbit out of the hat. I think this is a whole lot more complicated than that. I think it is more infused with the occult and satanic uh, endeavors. We're talking about a magician who used the occult to perform, quote, as the text says, signs and wonders that would astonish the people. The Bible says he had an incredible spiritual power, and I believe it was fueled by the demonic. Notice here, he was a man of self-importance. He had convinced, check this out, isn't this interesting? From the least of those to the greatest of these, or whatever, he convinced them all that he was somebody great. I mean, the amount of pull and attraction to himself was amazing. This dude was popular with everyone. All classes of society would have known and enjoyed the show, right? We saw one of those in Guatemala, did we not? We were walking around in Antigua and we saw someone, not at this level of course, but performing 
for a show. In fact, the text says that he was called the great power of God. Now, how would you like to get that label? The great power of God. I think people believed all of his press releases, right? Every press release this guy threw out there, everybody believed it. And when you make up your own press release, it's usually not safe to believe the person giving the release. So the people took it hook, line, and sinker. They believed that he was the embodiment of divine power. They believed that the power of God rested on this man. Now, we have some extra-biblical history about Simon, and it reveals that he was not only famous in Samaria, but probably all the way over to Rome he was known. The dude had to make a pretty good living. Don't you think? He probably made a huge living. I suppose he was lucrative. Uh, You're going to be a lucrative person if you're called the very power of God. And so that was his title. He, his magical arts uh, astonished the people. And at the same time, he had an expanding pocketbook. Do we think we have any televangelists today who have expanding pocketbooks uh, with a pull on the people and they don't even preach the word? It's an amazing thing, right? Well, his fame is going to be rivaled by the gospel inside of Philip, which has the power to transform a soul. Philip was coming down into Samaria preaching the name of Jesus and the gospel, the kingdom of God. You know what he was really preaching, according to those idioms? He was preaching that God reigns, not Simon. Just If I had time to unpack the terminology, but trust me, I don't. But... The terminology he's using here with name and and gospel and kingdom. He's preaching that our God reigns. Just think he's coming on to the occult stage. You don't think God has the power to save a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness? You hadn't read this book. He can save anybody, anytime, anywhere. Through the power of the gospel. And that's what's going on here. God reigns. He was preaching the redemptive historical rule of God over all things. Our God is king. Now, they believed, the Samaritans did, in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. That's all they believed. But after that, it was a smorgasbord of all kind of uh, religious beliefs, pluralism. But they also believed in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that said there's one. Moses said this, there's one coming after me, you better listen to him. And Remember the woman at the well? Are you the one that the prophet spoke of was coming? And Jesus said, that's me, you're looking at him. And so, again... Philip comes along, preaches that God reigns, and this means he was preaching Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is God. And as a result of this, what else was he preaching? Something that Simon could never offer, which is, which is the total center part of the gospel, that our God can forgive. Come on, folks. You're a sinner whether you admit it or not. God can forgive your sin, right? That God can forgive sin. That's something in a million years that Simon could not offer to anyone. Is the ability to forgive sin. So he's preaching the forgiveness of sins. As a result of the preaching, they heard the word. It was attested by powers and signs and wonders. But something gripped these people. And it was more than just a sign or a wonder that could be performed by one Simon. 
It was the gospel of the, G- the Lord Jesus Christ that penetrated the heart, the ability for God to forgive sins. They saw the supernatural God given power through Philip. But again, Philip offered them something that Simon could never offer, and that was the forgiveness of sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we believe the gospel is no respecter of persons, right? Doesn't matter who it is. Uh, doesn't matter what your race is or where you are. Grace can reach you. And again, verse 13 is kind of disturbing if you're tracking with me. Simon gets caught up in all the excitement. And of course, the text reminds us that he sees the signs and the wonders. He hears the preaching. The Bible says he believed and even hung out with Philip. He even believed and hung out with the preaching deacon. Now, I want you to know something. You must remember that in the language of the New Testament, it doesn't always supply for us or provide for us a difference between believing to profess something in the mind versus believing to possess something in the heart. Correct? You know, James chapter 2, the demons believe and they tremble, but they're not on their way to heaven, right? There's a different kind of believing And we have no reason to believe by reading the text and looking at the words that the kind of belief Simon has was in fact regenerating belief. No evidence whatsoever that he came to know Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. No forgiveness of sin here. This is not conversion of the heart. Before we move on from here, I think we need to remember that it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that proved victorious over Simon's magic. Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Aren't you thankful for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? At this point, we see the boldness of Philip's witness, the power of the gospel in him. And in verse 14, we have the response of the apostles back in Jerusalem. Here we have this apostolic delegation. Remember, where are the apostles when Philip and Stephen go out to preach? Especially Philip. They stayed back in Jerusalem, right? And so in verse 14, we have these words that now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent out Peter and John. And the Bible says they they were not sent out because something was wrong. It was not like the hub of Southern Baptist life, which is in Nashville. And it's not like something was going on in Ozark, at First Baptist Ozark, and they said, hey, we need to go down there and check out what's going on down there to see if it's legit or not, right? Y'all do know that Lifeway's up there in Nashville, right? Come on, folks, yeah. It's not like the big boys up in Nashville came down to check out what's going on at First Baptist Ozark. There's not something wrong. It was the fact that the Church of God sends out delegates, Peter and John, And the Bible says they began to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. And Luke says very carefully that he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, of course, this raises massive questions concerning uh, what's going on here. No matter what stripe you are, denominationally, it raises questions. Whew, it's 15 after. That's all right. We're going to deal with the problem, right? Now, the question is this. Is there a two-stage initiation pattern established at this point in the New Testament regarding trusting Jesus versus receiving the Holy Spirit at a latter time? 
Is it possible to believe and be baptized and then to have something else happen to you later? Now, there are a lot of groups that believe in a two-initiation stage or pattern. It's held by sacramentalists, which would be your Roman Catholics. It's also held by experientialists, uh, a lot of um, charismatics, Church of God. Uh, A lot of people believe that there's a two-stage initiation pattern. In reference to the Roman church, Acts 8, they see a two-stage initiation. You can be baptized, and then sometime down the line, you actually receive the Holy Spirit. But to them, it's not a sensational thing. They do it through sacraments and confirmation. They do it through a ritual ceremony. But we are most familiar with this kind of understanding. You believe in Jesus, right? And then you're baptized... You're kind of an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christian. And then sometime later, you have a post-conversion experience, which they would call baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's actually your second stage. There are other forms of two-stage. One would be you trust Jesus as Savior, just to forgive you of your sins. And sometime down the line, you begin to start trusting Him as your Lord, which that's totally contrary to the Bible as well. He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Right? So in this text, we are dealing in Acts 8. I want to remind you that this does not support any kind of two-stage initiation uh, pattern in the Bible. Uh, I think you're absolutely blind as a bat. If you can't see that there's something going on here in redemptive history that never happened before or since. Right, remember, context is king. The gospel is moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So there are things that are going to happen embryonically that have never happened before. And something necessitates the apostles to leave Jerusalem and come down to Samaria. The first thing is this. It is significant in redemptive history because of what's taking place at that moment. The gospel is no longer just a Jewish message. Are y'all listening? It, it, until this point, is confined to the Jewish people. Remember? It's the power of God to those who believe to the Jews. Oh, you got it, right? To the Jews first and also to all who will believe. So it's no longer just a Jewish message. It's no longer just a Jewish church. What takes place in Samaria needs apostolic approval and delegation. And there's a reason why the Spirit's coming was delayed in Samaria is found in the relationship of Samaria to Jerusalem as a covenant community of God. Remember, they were outside of the covenant people of God until Jesus came. Right? And so there's a reason for it. Philip's groundbreaking evangelism in Samaria was the confirmation to the testimony of Peter and John. Peter and John come down to verify the preaching of the Word and the reception of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit was abnormally delayed in Samaria in order for Peter and John to come from Jerusalem. They needed that confirmation. Significance. Why? Because the same Spirit they got in Jerusalem is the same Spirit they're going to get in Samaria. They needed that confirmation to see it. So they were the very same thing that happened here is going to happen in chapter 10 with Cornelius. A full blown Gentile. Remember, these are half-breeds. Half Jew, half some other kind of nationality, whoever the Assyrians brought in as POWs, whoever that might be. They were half-breeds. But when you get to Cornelius, 
He's a full-blooded Gentile like me and you. He's not a Jew in nationality. And so when we get there, it's also going to need apostolic approval and delegation. Okay? So if you're going to establish a pattern, then you need to find out what Paul taught in his epistles. Right? Again, Acts is historical narrative. Everything in Acts is not meant for you to be, to be prescriptive for you. Some of it is describing the events because it's historically accurate and truth. Okay? So, in this case, what happens in Acts chapter 10? I think you need to look at that. I, I will preach that again, by the way, when we get over to Acts 10. Acts 10 verse 44. Note how this pattern takes place. And this is how Paul is going to preach it in the epistles, which are his writings. 1044, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Was Peter an apostle? Was he present that day? Yes, with Cornelius he was, but before he wasn't. Listen. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even out even on the Gentiles. For they were, listen, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Y'all find anything interesting? Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the... Okay. If there's a pattern here, folks, the pattern is very clearly that these individuals heard the gospel from the Word of God, they believed the Word, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were water baptized. Y'all see it in the text? You can't make that mean anything else. So that becomes the pattern. Thus, let me read to you Ephesians 1, verse 13. For the sake of time, don't turn there. Listen. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That all happens right then, one ball of wax, when you trust Jesus as your Lord. That is the pattern given to us in the Apostle Paul's teaching and preaching. It's highly dangerous to base any doctrine or practice on only what is recorded in Acts 1 through 10. You might be building your faith upon something that is temporary and transitional. You'd be very careful uh, to build your faith upon something that is not clearly taught in the Word of God and prescriptive for us. Racially, this was the first time the gospel went outside Jerusalem. Now the gospel welcomes... Yeah, here's the deal. The gospel had welcomed the Samaritans, Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the Jews? That's the question. Thank God for the Lord Jesus sending Peter and John on down there to see that the same thing they received is the same thing that was received by the Samaritans. There are no grounds for us to think there's a pattern established for a two-stage initiation in the Bible in the Christian life. This is redemptive and historical and racially significant. Now, after that long rabbit trail, did y'all learn anything on that one? Oh, yeah. After that long rabbit trail, let's get back to Simon. He's a pretty interesting dude, isn't he? Well, this guy's going to do the unthinkable. He's obviously impressed by what Philip does. 
with a manifestation of miracles and power. But man, he's really amazed at Peter and John that they come down from Jerusalem and they lay their hands on these individuals and they received the Holy Spirit of God. Man, this blows Simon's doors off. I mean, whether he's uh, specialized more than we would think, whether it's more than pulling a rabbit out of the hat, that's insignificant. This man was blown away. Simon thought he was good. Wow. These guys just put their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a legacy left by Simon that you don't want to be your legacy in the church. It's called simony. How many of y'all know that it came from this? Raise your hand. Simony is what? It's an effort to buy ecclesiastical power or office. How would you like for that to be stuck to your name for the rest of time? Simony comes right from here. Well, again, he appears to have saving faith until he betrays himself. What an incredible scene. He basically says this, how much for me to be able to do that? How much can I pay you to be able to put my hands on you or anybody and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? He obviously didn't know Peter, did he? You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They knew Peter. Son. In verse 20, Peter kind of lets them down easily. That's supposed to be funny. Because he doesn't. Uh, Actually, here's the Greek expression word for word. To hell with you and your money. Wow. Son, if I preached like that, I'd probably lose some of you, wouldn't I? That's exactly what the translation is. Uh, It is the strongest expression that can be uttered by a human when it comes to a curse. May you and your money rot and perish. This is, again... Uh, He says it emphatically. You have no portion or part in this matter. Listen how strong that is. He uses a term to encompass the entire scope of what has taken place. You have no part in the gospel or salvation or the Holy Spirit. Man. You have no part. The gospel, its proclamation, its power, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the whole ball of wax, you have no part in that. And then he says this, and your heart is not right before God. Peter doesn't say this is a matter of ignorance here. It's an indictment, is it not? Your heart is not right with God. In verse 22, Peter tells him to repent of wickedness. Simon, repent right now of the wickedness that is in your heart. Peter says something terrifying at this point. Did you pick up on it? Chapter 10. Excuse me, chapter 9. One more back. Eight, right? For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the, and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me. No, 22. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent. Now folks, you read across some things in the scripture and you just kind of bump over them. But when you read this phrase, that if it is possible that God might forgive you the wickedness of your heart, we pray he will do so. That's terrifying. Did anybody pick up on that the first time we read through it? There's something similar said like that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But this is amazing. He's confronting a man whose heart is not right with God. He's just tried to buy the gift of God with money. 
And Peter is saying to him, repent and turn from this so that even if it is possible, God might forgive you. Folks, there are times when uh, we tell people that if you repent, I promise you God will forgive you. You ever done that before? Just repent and God will forgive you. Well, here's the deal. If that person is before God, he is humble in his presence, he is repentant, he's aware of his sinful condition before God, he longs for forgiveness, he yearns for pardon, then there's no reason for us not to say that if you bend your knee to Jesus, I promise you the God of eternity will wipe your sins away. Right? We are fully given the keys of the kingdom to say this is exactly what God can do for you with no strings attached. Yet there are other times depending on the circumstances and the people, when you're dealing with them, where it is absolutely right and necessary to underscore the fact that you need to repent, and if it is possible, God may forgive you of your sins. Mm. It's a different way to think about it, right? Why is this necessary? Because God saves on His own terms, not ours. We think we can even manipulate salvation. Like if I just go out and give the message... I can just have somebody pray and they're going to be saved. Wrong! God has to grant them repentance for them ever to be saved. God gives pardon, not people. People can't give pardons to anyone. Only God gives a pardon. And so, God does what He does on His own terms. Now think about this in relation to context. Simon was used to dealing with and trafficking in the spiritual power realm. In the The title of the sermon is The Gospel Versus Misplaced Religion. Isn't there a lot of misplaced religion in the world today? Misplaced religion is even to put your faith in a church to save you. Or what you do to save you. Anything you think is a work to gain heaven is a misplaced religious falsity. There's no truth in that whatsoever. And so Simon is used to doing things on his own terms. You know, that's the way the United States is today. We want to come to Jesus, but we don't want to come on our own terms. Let this echo in your mind. Only God can pardon you and forgive you of your sins. If He wants to. Right? If He wants to. And so Simon still wants to be in control. But Peter puts Simon in his place and tells him that repentance is not an option. And I hope it's possible that God would forgive you. God tells his wayward people this in Zephaniah. And again, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about this in reference to those that Timothy is dealing with that are false teachers. This doesn't mean if it is possible that God can save. God can turn a person's heart in no time at all. He may have turned your heart just as I said that. He's that powerful. Yet the sinner needs to know that they must look away from themselves and to the God of eternity who forgives sins. Not anything in yourself or anything you can do. All things are possible through our God. When you absolutely abandon any hope of trying to secure your own forgiveness by any other means than just casting yourself whole long, foot long on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is only the one, He's the only one that can save. We are saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. And so Paul will, will reiterate this in his epistles. There are times when people need to be shut up and scared to death. So how do you know that, preacher? Because I've preached for 20 years and pastored churches. And there's been a good many times when I've sit in my office and I needed to say those words. 
If it be possible for God to forgive you, He will. There are other times when the person is broken before God and repentant and humble, and you just say, turn to Jesus, and He'll forgive you of your sins. Wow. Peter makes an emphatic statement here. He says, you're still in the gall of bitterness. That comes from Deuteronomy 29. It's a reference to people who are in a stranglehold to idolatry. What it means is you're still captive by your sin. You have no part with God, no part of the gospel. You're still captive in your sins. The bond of wickedness comes from Isaiah 58.6, and it means to be in bondage or yoked to sin. And here's Peter's assessment. I still see that you are captive by your idolatry, and you are still in bondage to your sin. Folks, if that's the case, you're a lost man or a woman. Uh, his, his language is pretty unambiguous at this point, right? You don't have any part. Simon at this point was no more a Christian than Satan would be a Christian. Peter speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He exposes the condition of Simon's heart. He gives a diagnosis of what was really in Simon. As I read that, I thought to myself, Son, it would have been tough to go to church with Peter. How would you like to have gone to church with the Apostle Peter? You come in thinking all th- everything's okay, and he says, well, let me ask you this. What's really in your heart? Man, he did a diagnosis given to him by the Holy Spirit of Ananias and Sapphira. He knew exactly what they did with that land. knew exactly what they did with that money. And here he diagnosis, not because of Peter's ability, but the Christ who was in him. been a scary thing to go to church with Peter, right? Yes, it would. So Simon's going to make a request. But note this, it's not a prayer. Peter tells him to repent. Simon says, you pray for me. Simon still was not concerned with God's pardon for his sin. He just wanted to escape the judgment that could have come his way. Are y'all listening at this point? He wants to escape the judgment. That's called attrition. Contrition is when you turn to God. Attrition is when you want to get out of hell free card. Well, that's plaguing the United States, is it not? If, if Jesus is God, let's put him on the shelf, and just in case all the rest of them don't work out, maybe I'll be able to escape hell. Huh. That's not contrition. That is attrition. God, I might be guilty somewhere down the line. And at least I put you on my shelf of gods, and maybe you can get me out of hell. That's kind of like the old rusty jack that we put in the tailgate of the car, in the trunk. You don't use that old rusty jack until you got a flat tire. You don't use the Jesus thing until life goes sideways. That's attrition. That's not contrition. Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Right? And so here is Simon's response. He doesn't care anything about forgiveness of sin. That's not his request. He doesn't want the pardon from God. He doesn't hit himself on his chest like the publican and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But that should have been his response. Forgiveness of sins was not on the forefront of his mind. Did this man ever come to faith in Christ? We don't know. Some people connect him uh, to the synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation. Possible? We don't know. But there's no recorded historical assessments 
of him coming to faith in Christ. It's not favorable. Now this raises the issue of false professors. It seems that Philip may have been somewhat okay with Simon. Now we don't know that, but he hangs out with him, right? He uh, joins himself to the ones who profess faith in Jesus. It seemed that the celebrity had become a Christian. Do we ever idolize celebrities in the U.S. when one of them is lost as a ball in high grass and they get saved? Uh, one NFL player or two NFL players come to faith in Jesus and we think Christ is coming back tomorrow. Right? Or a Hollywood movie star. Say if Harrison Ford got saved tomorrow, we'd be like, Woo, the rapture's happening tomorrow. Because a celebrity got saved. I'm going to tell you how those celebrities are saved, just like you are. And if they don't come in humble faith and, and desire a full pardon from the king by grace through faith alone, then they're not saved. The only way they can be saved is the same way you get saved. Right? You're a sinner. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to find food. Right? And you find it with Jesus, spiritually speaking, coming to know him personally. So, no matter who you are, uh, we're ordinary sinners who are coming to an extraordinary God that's able to save. Now, no matter how you see Simon, you've got to admit the fact that he was in the fellowship and most had no clue that he was unregenerate until he exposes himself. And this is a stirring reminder that not everyone who has the appearance of being in Christ is actually in Christ. Not everyone who says he's got an interest in the things of Jesus is really, really has the root of the matter inside of them. He was hanging out with the right people. However, the root of salvation was never in him. And I think in our day we tolerate way too much. It says Simon believed, right, preacher? All it says in the Bible is you've got to believe. Simon believed, right? He was even baptized. He's got to be a born-again believer. Preacher, I was even there when he prayed the sinner's prayer. He prayed it just like we learned it in RAs. He prayed the sinner's prayer. Followed me word for word, just like I led him in the prayer. He was sincere as he could be. Do you know that we have elevated sincerity in the U.S. to the level of saving faith? All you got to be is sincere to enter the kingdom, Right? Well, I want to remind you that sincerity can be temporary, fleeting, and turned upside down on its head. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, period. We should never, in our day, question anyone's sincerity, right? Well, you can be sincere, folks, but you can be sincerely wrong. No doubt about it. And by all means, never question the sincerity of yourself. That's not the American way, right? You know by all means your own heart, right? Well, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all, above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You don't even know your own heart. One time, sometimes the worst thing that can ever be said is trust your own heart. Your heart is a Jacob. The heart is deceitful. Jacob is the Hebrew word. He's a heel grabber. Your heart is a Jacob. You can't trust your heart. What you trust is the Word of God. You trust the Word of God. And I know God moves your heart. You're supposed to love Him with all your heart. But that comes with an understanding first of what the Word says when your affections are moved. And you put your faith in Jesus. 
In conclusion, some of you are waiting for those words, right? Simon is a monument over the last 2,000 years that not everybody is what they appear to be. Please listen to me at First Baptist Ozark. Now, I know I'm still the new preacher on the block, although I'm getting old. The honeymoon's pretty much over. It is. Uh, you know, I've seen that. I realize that. But God's Word hadn't changed. And it's highly possible that you've been a church member but lost for the last 20 years. It's highly possible. It could easily be that way today. Well, can't be saved by sincerity. You're saved by Jesus Christ alone. Only in Jesus Christ. A couple of applications. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. Can't buy Him. Can't purchase salvation. It's a gift of God. Aren't you thankful? There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Check that out. It's given. The name is given to you. It's a gift from God. That cuts against the grain of our humanity because we want to work for it. We have pride. We don't want to bow before Christ. The Lord isn't your personal genie. He's the omnipotent Lord of glory. That's who He is. This means your money or your social status or your talents cannot save you. And it can't give you a higher ring, a rung, whatever you want to call it, a position in the kingdom. Salvation is a gift from God. You know what we ought to also do? Marvel at God's amazing saving grace. People were saved right out of Samaria. And then listen, think about how merciful God is. Peter even gives Simon another chance. Isn't God so faithful and patient with us? He even gives Simon another chance. Just repent and turn to the Lord. God have mercy on me is what Peter was wanting him to say. God has given you another chance to repent and be saved today by hearing this sermon. Been patient toward you. God removed the poison from the body. The gospel of our king can set anyone free and he can change anyone's lives. Yet keep this in mind. Things are not always as they appear to be. Perhaps you're a Simon this morning. Not in the sense of what is in the text necessarily. Maybe you're not guilty of simony, but I would say there are a lot of preachers today who go into the ministry thinking, whoo, I don't have to work. I just kind of take it easy. Well, they're dumb. All right? Let's go ahead and tell you that. That's the dumbest thing you can ever do. If you're not called to this, you better not go after it. God better call you for it. All right? Or you won't make it. I promise you. But p- perhaps in your life there's been some things you said, Lord, if, if I just do this, I got your favor. Or, if I just come to church, everything's going to be okay. Better yet, God, I can be saved by inheritance. My granddaddy was a Christian. Well, surely I am. I guess we think we get that by osmosis or something. Or, or some of you guys, I'm just going to ride the old lady's coat to heaven because she's the spiritual part of the family. Oh, if you ever say that, God forbid you ever say that. Me and you ought to say, I am the spiritual leader in my home. You can't be saved by acquaintances. Just because your friend is on the way to heaven (laughs) has no bearing on your life. Salvation is personal. It's you and you alone that must come to grips with the reign of the King. Father, thank you for this day. And Lord, I know the hour's late. 
But Lord, you're always working. And Father, we need to hear this as a church. Lord, we need to be reminded that, Father, you even tell Paul, you even say that, Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians, that we examine ourselves so that we would not be counterfeits, that we would not be disqualified. Paul said that of himself. Constant evaluation of where we are before you. God, I know you've got the power to save a sinner this morning. That's a foregone conclusion. You're in the business of saving souls. And perhaps there's one today where the gospel hit that cord in their heart. And Lord, you have brought them to the place of repentance. And they're going to put their faith in you. Uh, In response to your grace, reaching out to them, they're going to lay it all before you and say, God, forgive me. Have mercy on my soul. Pardon my sin. Be my Lord and Savior. Turn from sin and self and trust Jesus only for salvation. The payment has been paid. It's not what we can do to be saved. It's what you've already done to save us. You did it on Calvary. God, would you save a soul if it's your will this morning? And for Christians, Lord, embolden us to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel to our friends. It's the power of God into salvation. It can can even overcome the occult. We know how powerful it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.